Amen. Thanks, Ron. Uh, good morning. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. Uh, I, want, I want to make a disclaimer um, that we believe in singing, not sinning. Um, <laughs> Terry said, Terry thought the joy of the Holy Spirit was falling upon the place. And I said, no, it just was that there was the wrong word on the on the slides. So if you're here, it's sing with me, not sin with me. Just thought I'd throw that out there. <laughs> Welcome to church planting. Um, if you've not been with us over the last few weeks, this summer we are taking a, a number of weeks, nine I believe, and, and doing a series coming back. It seems like we're never going to get out of Galatians to uh, the por- portion of Galatians chapter five where Paul begins to talk about what a heart supernaturally transformed by the Spirit of God looks like. And he says they're fruit that are, that are being produced in that heart. Love and joy and peace and patience. Uh, and so we're going to be looking this morning, as has already been said, at this fruit of the Spirit, patience. And to do that, we're going to read just again from Galatians chapter 5, a couple of, um, a couple of verses, and then we're going to go to Colossians chapter 3 and read... Uh, quite a long portion of scripture there. Uh, don't get knotted up by that. We're not going to necessarily go verse by verse. We're just going to pull some things out. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn to those places, you're welcome to. If not, it is printed for you in your worship folder. It will also be on the screen behind me as we read these passages of scripture together. So um, follow along, if you will, beginning in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, Paul says. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And then Paul to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above and not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness. All of these things are idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And in these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here in the church, there is neither green or Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And then here's where we're going to focus. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved or beloved, compassionate hearts. Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. And above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your heart to God and whatever you do in word or deed. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is God's word. 
If you have a Bible and you want to go to Galatians chapter 5, I would have you notice, and it's not printed for you here, but the fruit of the Spirit are contrasted there by Paul with what he calls the works of the flesh. And what is interesting about the works of the flesh is they are primarily referring to the parts of our sinful nature that destroy relationships. Here's just a list. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. These are the things that Paul says are really the, the, the work of this opposing spiritual force that comes to bear upon our lives, the flesh. And it, it's interesting to see that they're all words that describe the dysfunction or the or the degradation of human community into factions and strife and envy and, and rivalries and, and competition and these sorts of things. And so I want to just say at the beginning, uh, before we get too far into this this morning, that the Scripture is teaching us that we're being fitted together and built into a dwelling place for God. If you see that there in Colossians, there, down at the bottom, if I can find it, um, that we are, where does he say it? I'm not going to be able to find it. But he's talking about that we're all called to one body. Um, we're being put together into one body in the image of God, our creator. And, and so the fruit that Paul says the spirit is producing, here's what I want us to be careful to not do. It, it's not just producing them in us as individuals, but primarily they're the things he is doing in each of us to put on display for the watching world, the kind of relationships that we can enjoy with one another. Um, so love and peace, patience, Kindness, gentleness, these are the heart attitudes that create a beautiful community of people who aren't identified by jealousy and factions and envy and division, but love and humility and peace with one another and befriending kindness to one another. But you see, we're so trained in our culture by individualism that the temptation is to take these things home with us and figure out how to get it done in the privacy of our own lives and marriages. But that's not at all what we're being called to here. And this will become more obvious this morning as we deal with patience. Because patience is the opposite of anger. And patience is a word that refers to the way we respond when we sin against one another and offend one another and hurt one another. And I chose Colossians 3 because it so clearly, so powerfully portrays the kind of community that the church should be. A people who have, he says here, put away, put away anger and wrath and malice. You see that in verse 7? And slandering. And have been clothed in verse 12 by the Holy Spirit with compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience, which means willing to bear with one another and forgive one another and love one another no matter what the cost. So if you see your outline this morning, you'll see uh, we have four points, not three as usual. But I want to I want to look at patience with these headings. First, I want to look at the definition of patience, what it is. Secondly, the danger of impatience or the root of impatience. Thirdly, the display of patience, what it would look like. So the, the definition, the danger of the display, and I'm Baptist, and so in the Baptist church growing up, everything needed to start with the same letter, and I tried really hard, but I couldn't come up with a fourth one. And so the fourth is veering away from the D is just the energy for patience. Where does the energy come from? How do you cultivate it in your life? So the definition, the danger to display, and then where does the energy come from? So let's look at this in these four headings, beginning with, the definition of patience. And you can see there in your outline, I just called it this. It's delayed gratification. Now, we are not a very patient culture. Can I get an amen? Right? We, we don't believe in delayed gratification. We believe in instant gratification. We're a drive-through culture. 
We are a microwave culture. We want things now. We expect things now. We're absolutely intolerant of delayed gratification. And in many ways, if I might, the real estate collapse that we're dealing with as a result of impatience. We don't need to wait. We want what we want now, even if we can't afford it now. And if we don't get what we want in a timely manner, then we get offended or we get angry. You see, angry is the opposite of impatience. But we are not a very patient culture. And I have to be honest with you and just go ahead and say from the outset, I'm in this with you. I am not a very patient person. Um, and it's just fun to watch, you know, that get discovered. I was had a really harrowing experience in Walmart very late at night in Bartow uh, this week, which is just creepy. Um, and I needed to get home. No offense, Marty. I'm sorry. You know, but, you know, Bartow Super Walmart, never been there. Decided to go like at 11, 15 at night. Because Anyway, it's a really strange thing. And um, every, every, I needed to get home. It was a Saturday night. I wanted to get, you know, a church comes early Sunday. And I, I wanted to, to, you know, and so I'm doing the whole, and Canaan, my nine-year-old is with me. And we're doing the whole, okay, this line. No, 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 wait, this line. And literally, you know, you're with me, right? And eventually, after about the fifth time of changing lanes, Canaan looks at me, and, and you know, in the, little, the way a little nine-year-old says it, Daddy, this is ridiculous. <laughs> and I've done this. Has anybody ever done this? You put your nine-year-old in one line, and you stand in the other line? You with me? I mean, so he knows the drill. I mean, he knows the drill because he's been with me enough. So he knows the drill. <laughs> Daddy, this is ridiculous. And it reminded me, I, just, just to illustrate, and I wish, I can't figure out, if anybody knows how to, maybe Susan, you know this, how to take um, YouTube clips and download them so you can view them. If anybody can hook me up with that technology, I need it. Uh, because there's an old commercial, Visa Check Card. And I don't know if you remember the Visa Check Card commercials, but there's this one commercial where um, they're in a flower shop, and it's so great, it's spring, and everybody's, the, the employees are smiling, and the guys that are shooting, there's, you know, the stuff's coming out of the hose, like a waterfall, and right into it, and everybody's whistling, and it's going great. And they're going through the line and they're swiping cards. And then all of a sudden, here comes the lady with the checkbook. And it's, I mean, literally, the music stops in the commercial and everything goes dark and the flowers wilt, you know, and there is no singing. And then she's done and it's it's back the next person, you know, and and, and the line is visa because life takes faster money or something. I don't even know what that means. But it's just such a picture of the way we live our lives, I think, in this word patience. So this word patience cuts right at the heart of what we have to deal with as far as where we, you know, where we wrestle with this as individuals and in a culture that's just very intolerant of it. And the word patience, if you have an older translation, it might be, and I hope it is because it's a better translation, the word is translated often long-suffering. It's a compound word from the Greek word makrothumos or makrothumos. And it's a compound word that just means this macro, which you probably word power made easy. And some of you may know that, you know, that means long or big or extended. Tumos is a Greek word that means it's it's an explosion or a violent blaze or an eruption of anger. And so patience, if you put those two together, this word patience just means that you can deal with delayed gratification without getting angry and lashing out. That's what it means. In other words, there are going to be times when we hurt one another and when we sin against one another and when we offend one another. And, and, and patience means you can suffer that. You can suffer injustice or mistreatment or frustrating circumstances or really just how annoying people can be sometimes. And you don't lash out. You know, you don't blow up. So patience is closely related to joy and peace. Remember, and I'm going to get it right today, there's a buoyancy of the heart. Don't frex. I'm going to get it right today. 
was an inside joke. I said Frex last week, which I meant to say Brett and Vex, and it came out as Frex. So there you go. Patience is closely related because it's a buoyancy of the heart. It's a quietness of the heart. And here's where it applies today, that even being mistreated or sinned against doesn't affect that. A patient person is a person who can take it, delay gratification, who can take it and not lash out and not explode in anger. And there are lots of ways you can lash out. You know, you can lash out with your hands. But a patient person is a person who, when things aren't going their way, refuses to take matters into their own hands. They can bear with whatever circumstances they find themselves in. Or, you know, you can lash out with your tongue. And when somebody has hurt you, when you're very angry or aggravated with somebody and the perfect opportunity to recover some of your dignity comes along by destroying them with your words, you know, a patient person is a person who doesn't do that. Long-suffering. Or you can lash out with your heart. You can, as James says in James 4, you can grumble against one another, or worse, you can grumble against God and grow bitter and resentful. And there's a constant blaze of anger just beneath the surface of your life because your heart is lashed out and a patient person doesn't do that. Or you can lash out with your will when you're unhappy with God's timing, when you're having to wait for something you really, really want, and then you do whatever it takes to get that thing, even if you know if it's the wrong thing to do, even if it's sin. And this fruit of patience is, is the fruit that tempers that. It's the buoyancy of the heart that, that comes and deals with frustrating circumstances in times when we're offended and hurt. And so a patient person is a person who deals with delayed gratification without lashing out with the hand or the tongue or the heart or the will. A patient person's heart can remain quiet like we talked about last week despite the circumstances or a difficult relationship. That person is a person who's willing to submit to God's schedule and to wait and to bear with his circumstances and to not give in to anger. That's patience. Okay? That's the definition. That's what we mean. Now, if that's patience, then why? Let's go to point two. Why then is impatience so dangerous? Why is it so important that the Spirit cultivate this fruit of patience in our lives? Okay? Impatience may seem like a little thing. And I'll be honest with you, most times when I hear people talking about impatience, we talk about impatience and we just think, have you ever noticed this? It's one, it's this one thing, one of these sins that we really just excuse in ourselves. You know, I'm just impatient. Like, I have no intention of working on it. You know, it's just, I'm just impatient. I'm sorry. I'm a jerk. My excuse is I'm impatient. You have to deal with that in me. I mean, you know, you know what I mean? And it's kind of this one thing that we just kind of, but, but here's the problem is that impatience leads to bigger things because it's really rooted in self-pity and pride and selfishness. So let me just just get right to the heart of it, okay? When when we're impatient, it's really saying, this is really the heart attitude of what we're dealing with. It's saying, God, you don't know what you're doing. Your schedule stinks. I know better than you do what you're doing. I know what I'm doing. And so patience at its very core really is cosmic treason. It's saying to God, I'm overthrowing you. Now, mind you, not I'm not overthrowing you in the whole universe, just my little part of the universe. But the heart intent and desire is to overthrow God. It's wanting to put ourselves in the place of God. That's really what impatience is. And so can you see it's really a serious thing because it's rooted in pride. It's willfulness. And the anger we feel when our will is thwarted proves it. We see we get angry. I mean, don't we get so angry? 
And we get angry because we <laughs> we really consider ourselves and our agenda that important. I mean, I'm an important person. How dare somebody have the nerve to get in my way? And our will is being challenged. And impatience with people and circumstances and red lights and doctor's offices and all these things. What we need to see is really underneath all of that is an impatience with God. And I would just ask you, do you know that about your heart? Do you know what the scripture teaches that what is true of your heart and mine is that we want to overthrow God's throne? We're impatient and we want to rule in his place. And there is lurking in my heart and in your heart the desire to sit on God's throne and to take his place. And that was the original sin of Adam and Eve. And it's the heart attitude behind every surface, every every sin sense. And so to be impatient, to be impatient really is to ascribe to a different religion than Christianity. And I know pastors are, are prone to overstatements. You know, I'm the worst of them. But I want to say it again, to, to be impatient is really to ascribe to a different religion other than Christianity. Because when you're impatient, you're basically saying, I want and expect God to serve me, and I want to tell him what he has to do. And that's paganism, not Christianity. See, in paganism, you manipulate the gods. You give them what they want. You know, they ask certain things from you, and you, you play the part, and you give them the things that you want uh, so that they will give you the things that you want. You didn't serve the gods. You did whatever you had to do to get them to serve you. And impatience is paganism. It's an inner heart attitude. Uh, impatience is like snapping your fingers and say, come here now. Now, let me ask you a question. If you're a parent, if your six-year-old was to look at you and say, mommy, how are you going to react to that? Oh, the rod of corrections coming out in my house. That's what we refer to as a banking. You know what I mean? If you're a boss, how would you react if, if an employee walked into your office? You're going to pull Donald Trump on them probably. You see what I'm saying? You wouldn't treat people you respect like that, would you? And yet it's the way we treat God, the one who spoke the universe into being and who gives every breath we breathe and holds our lives in his hands. And I just want to say that's a big deal. And it stands to reason that if we treat him that way, wouldn't you say it's a very little thing that we might consider treating one another the same? And so impatience with God, here's what happens, is it'll lead you to be impatient with people because it's people who are the way God is revealing to you just how impatient you are. Did you hear that? It's the boss at work who refuses to acknowledge your hard work and who hasn't promoted you. But you know in your heart, God didn't have to give you that boss. He could have given you another one. And so when you're angry at your boss, you're angry at him. Teenagers, let me talk to you for just a minute. When you're angry at your parents and when you resent their authority, it's really you're angry with God and you resent his authority. Do you know that? I mean, do you know, are you wise to the reality that that is what is happening in your heart? And so you see, patience is closely related to joy and peace. It's a disposition of the heart 
that freely submits and takes pleasure in God's disposal. In other words, patience is rooted in a joy in God's rule over our lives and what we talked about last week, and a deep confidence and trust in his wise and loving control in every circumstance and relationship. But in our rebellion and our sin, we do not delight in his rule. We resist it. We resent it. And so we're constantly trying to push our will onto him and onto the other people in our lives because that's what sin does. And it's this impatience uh, that manifests itself in all kinds of areas in our lives in a demanding spirit, in a, in a complete lack of perspective. In so many places where this where this 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 pushes itself out into our lives. And so here's what I want you to see. If that is who we are, I mean, if that is who the Bible diagnoses us to be, then what should that do to our expectation for how hard it's going to be for us to live with one another? What's it like to live with a with a with a teenager who is just having a hard time coming underneath the will of his of his parents? I mean, that's where I want to camp for a few minutes and talk about how this inner heart attitude of impatience affects our relationships because the church, look at point three, the church is a community of sinners. Now, I have to, I have a confession to make, and here's one of these things. I don't want to offend anybody, um, but sometimes that just happens, and it's good. But I get really frustrated, and we've had this happen. Uh, I, re, I get really, really, really frustrated when people come into the church and somehow, you know, somehow it just, you know, uh, we we don't meet their expectations or something happens uh, and and you know there's just there's neglect somewhere or we screw up and what happens is is and I, I've seen this over 15 years of pastoral ministry and it's people get mad and and so they leave the church and here's always here's always the thing that gets said on the other side of that is I'm not going there because they're just a bunch of hypocrites. Let me say. Uh, and I had a conversation this week and I had to say to somebody you know. A hypocrite is somebody who's pretending to be something they're not. But if I sin, so can I just say this to you? If, if I sin against you, um, you can't call me a hypocrite because I'm here standing before all of you saying I'm a sinner. Right? So call me a sinner. You know? You know, I'm only a hypocrite if I claim to be something that I prove to not be. But I'm standing before you saying I'm a sinner. And I want to say to you, you're a sinner. The church is a community of sinners. We sin against one another all the time, but it doesn't make us hypocritical. It makes us sinners. We're impatient. We're all arrogant. We all can be mean. Right. Even Marianne Lanehart, I, you know, I guess maybe I don't know, you know, maybe I. I you know. We all have it in us. There I went talking about her again when she was in the nursery. Yeah, I know. Dang. I do that every time. Don't tell her. Nobody tell her I said that. Because I don't want to find out if that's true or not. What Paul's doing in Colossians 3 is trying to get us ready for what it means to live in close proximity with one another. Okay? <laughs> We're sinners trying to befriend one another. Sinners trying to befriend sinners. And Paul has no illusions of grandeur. He knows it's going to be messy. <laughs> I mean, to expect people with a hard attitude that we just explained to get it right every time or even more times than not is naive. It's going to be it's going to be tough. Now, Jonathan Edwards, who was a Puritan pastor many, many, you know, a couple hundred years ago, he wrote a book called Charity and Its Fruits. And it's so good. And he has a chapter in there about patience. 
And it's a long paragraph, but I want to read it to you because it's so great. He says it this way. He says, we do not dwell in a world of purity and innocence and love, but in one that is is fallen and corrupt, miserable and wicked. And and that is very much under the reign and domination of sin. The principle of divine love that was once in the heart of man is extinguished and now reigns in but a few and in them in a very imperfect degree. And this is as true of the church as it is the world. And therefore, listen to what he says. He says, therefore, those who do not have a spirit with meekness, calmness, long suffering and composedness of the soul to bear with injuries in such a world. These people are miserable indeed and are likely to be wretched at every step of their way through life. If every injury, he says, we meet. And every reproach and malicious and unjust deed is to put our minds and hearts into a ruffle and tumult and disturb the calm and peace in which we may enjoy ourselves. Then we can have no possession or enjoyment of spirit, but shall be kept in a perpetual turmoil and tumult. Men who have their spirits heated and enraged and rising in bitter resentment when they are injured act as if they thought some strange thing had happened to them, whereas they are very foolish, for it is no such strange thing at all, but only what is to be expected in a world like the one we live in. Now, let me translate, because that's old English. Translation, our hearts are so black with sin that in our impatience and self-sitterness, we are trying to overthrow God from his throne. And if I'm willing to do that to him, then it's no big deal for me to try to overthrow you. And so we're going to be constantly sinning against one another and offending one another and needing to be reconciled to one another. And so if you're going to lash out, and if, and if you're not going to be willing to learn to take it every time someone offends you, then, then Jonathan Edwards is just warning you, you're going to be miserable. There's going to be conflict. And if we can't learn to deal with conflict in, mar- you know, in marriage and in parenting and in community, if we can't learn to deal with conflict and be patient with one another, then we're all going to be miserable. And so I want to just say it to you this way, and this is hard. Pray for me in this because I I know this is true, but I don't believe it and don't want it to be true. And the goal is not the absence of conflict. That's naive and foolish. If you're a parent, if you're married, the goal is not the absence of conflict. The goal of the spirit is patience with one another in the conflict. I mean, that's the kind of community Paul describes. And so you were wondering if we were ever going to come to the scriptures this morning. So in Colossians 3... I want you to see that this is the kind of community that Paul describes. He starts, if you look there in verse 12, he starts with showing the frame of heart that we must cultivate by giving this list of these list of adjectives, compassion, a heart of compassion, verse 12, kindness, humility, weakness, and patience. Okay, so compassion there means we have a tender heart, not a hard heart. It means to, it means to truly be affected by the needs of others and to be moved to action on their behalf. Uh, kindness refers to a willingness to give others what they need and not what they want and to befriend them. Okay, humility. Humility means to have a high opinion, to not have a high opinion of yourself and to not take yourself too seriously and, and to have a deep sense of your smallness before the other person. Excuse me, meekness. Or gentleness. It means a softness of disposition. It's not to not be harsh. And then, of course, Patience and patience just means what we've said. It means to be not easily provoked. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not easily provoked. It's long suffering. And so Paul says he shows us there the character of this community that the church is to be. And then he gets really in the nitty gritty and he talks about the behavior of the community. And here's where I want to camp for a minute. If you look there in verse 12, Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones, 
holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. Okay? Now, if if you are brave enough to live in close, close proximity to a group of people, there are going to be some people. Can I just say this? I need to get this off my chest. There's going to be some people, you know, a certain personality type or with certain idiosyncrasies, you know, there are going to be some people that just get on your nerves. You're laughing. I mean, are you with me? I mean, you know you have to love them because <laughs> the Bible calls you to do that, but you just don't like them very much. Or they're just hard to love because they're needy and insecure, uh, but there's not sin there. There's just, you know, kind of a melancholy of spirit or they differ in their political views or their theology or you just find their personality abrasive or offensive. And Paul says that to be patient with people like this, you have to, and here's the word, bear with them, literally. Literally, the word means you, you don't hold yourself back from them. You resist the temptation to withdraw and isolate yourself. You have to keep pursuing them and putting up with them and tolerating them and praying that God would give you enthusiasm for one another and your differences. And so just so you know, here's my list of those of you who fit in. No, just kidding. I'm not going to do that. But do you see what I'm saying? Bear with. Bear with one another. Be patient with one another. Don't, don't hold back from one another. Receive one another. Okay? And it's what Paul goes on. You see, that's the easy part. The hard part is where he keeps going in verse 13. He says, bear with one another. And if one has a complaint... You know, that means there's a charge, a fault, or now sin has entered the picture. There's an offense that has come. So what do you do with someone who wrongs you and sins against you when it's not just an issue of their personality, but they've willingly, intentionally sinned against you? Well, well, then Paul says what you do with that is you forgive. You mean, to be patient, to put flesh on patience. To be patient with somebody who's just not like you means you tolerate them and you make room for them when you're tempted to shut them out. But to be patient with somebody who's sinned against you means to stop yourself from becoming bitter and seeking revenge, from lashing out, whether with your your heart or your tongue or your will against the person because your pride is offended and you can't believe that they would do this to you. And so you come back with revenge. It's, it's, it's refusing to do that. It's freeing them from the debt their sin has created into work for reconciliation. And here's the amazing thing about the Bible is what Jesus would teach us in the Gospels. One, one time his disciples came to him and Peter had this, you know, Peter considered himself pretty, you know, a pretty upstanding religious guy. And he had, he had a great idea to get kudos from Jesus. And one time he said, you know, Master, Rabbi, how many times must I send my brother? And then he throws out a hypothetical seven times, which was more than twice what the, what the established law of the day called for. And Peter's thinking, man, seven times, man, that I put it way out there. And Jesus, do you remember, if you know the story, you know what Jesus says, don't you? He says, no, 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 70 times seven. And I love in the scriptures, the next thing the disciples say is increase our faith. Man, I don't know if I can do that. And what we're being taught there is there is no limit to the radical forgiveness we should be willing to show one another. And that this is the kind of love the Spirit is creating among us. This is the fruit He is bearing in us corporately that we'll bear with one another, that we'll forgive one another, that we'll love one another. And I just want you to notice. Do you notice? So, bearing patiently with one another, it's not anger, is it? I mean, it's a refusal to give in to anger. It's fighting against anger. It's not anger. Anger doesn't define us as a people, but notice, but notice, it's not indifference either. It's not a, it's not a, an unwillingness to, to be in conflict. It's a willingness to get right in the middle of the conflict. 
for the sake of love and to bear with whatever injury or insult or assault you may feel from the other person and to not lash back out, but to take it. Because when they nailed him to the cross, he looked down from the cross and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You see, that leads us to the fourth and final thing that we have to talk about this morning. And that is, man, if this is what I'm being called to, holy smokes. I mean, how in the world, how in the world do we get this done? I mean, this is radical, supernatural stuff. How does this happen? Where do you get the energy to live in community this way with one another? And remember, remember that the real issue is our hatred of God's rule and his sovereignty in our lives. And so somehow we've got to deal with that issue. We've got to get back to that issue. And Jeremiah Burroughs, in his book, and I've talked about this many, many times, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, he says, and this is great, I thought this was a great quote. I said it to Ashley, and she kind of looked at me like, "Mm -hmm." okay, so maybe we'll see if you agree with me or her. But here's what he says. This is so fabulous to me. He says, we worship God, and it was probably just, I should not, I need to come to Anyway, I didn't let her. Ashley needs to read the book to get it. But anyway, because I, I, I say things like Frex all the time, and so it confuses her. Jeremiah Burroughs, he says, we worship God by doing what pleases him, but also by being pleased with what God does. So he goes on to say, he says, what Christian, what, what Christian discipleship looks like is he says, I labor to do what pleases God. And then I labor that what God does shall please me. I labor to do what pleases God. And then I labor so that what God does shall please me. Now, what's he calling us to there? He's calling us to get our will underneath the will of the Father. And to to trust in God's intentions and his sovereign, wise, loving control of our lives. To believe, despite how hard our circumstances might be, that ultimately his heart is for us. It's the hardest thing in the world for a teenager to believe about his mother and father's heart when his mother and father say no. It's the hardest thing in the world for my heart to believe when I ask God, please change my circumstances. And he says no. But what has to happen is that no matter what my circumstances might be, there has to be this, this heart confidence that God is wise and good and loving. And the hard part about getting my will under his will is I doubt that. And I doubt his heart towards me. And so the power to live patiently with one another comes out of what is revealed about God's heart for us in the gospel. So look at verse 12 with me again from Colossians 3. And in verse 12, it's not in the ESV, and that's unfortunate. I wish it was. But if you have the NIV or another translation, it probably the verse probably begins with, Therefore, therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved put on compassion. And so the verse begins with a therefore. Therefore, because God loves you, because you're holy and dearly loved, bear with one another, forgive one another. You see, Paul is giving the Colossians instructions about how they're to treat one another in community, but he begins by reminding them, you're chosen and holy and dearly loved. And so patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, patience, these things are always in response to the way that God has treated us in the gospel. Look at verse 13. Paul says, forgive. But how does he qualify it? What's he say? Forgive how? Because he's forgiven you. You see, Paul, I mean, this is really helpful. And I want you to see this. Paul doesn't give them a rule. You know, here's the rule. Forgive one another. No, he says, no. Here's what you got to do. You got to ask yourself, how has Jesus forgiven me? You know, put your mind on that. And then you'll find the power to forgive one another. He doesn't say, you know, love one another. Hey, just get out there. Go love one another. He says, no, 
You're chosen, you're holy, you're dearly loved. Therefore, what's Paul doing? He's saying, you have to start with this. You have to start. You're chosen. I'm chosen, I'm holy, I'm dearly loved. And so, I want to just ask, do you know how much God loves you? Do you know what it cost him to love you? I mean, can you begin to fathom how patient he's been with you through all the years of your life? And how impatient are you when you're forced to deal with delayed gratification? You know, how angry do you get when people offend you or thwart you? You consider yourself a pretty important person, don't you? Like me. But think about this. God is the most important person in the universe. How demanding and impatient have you been towards him? I mean, how greatly... Have you offended and sinned against him, your creator and your heavenly father? And how has has he treated you? I mean, the the reality is, is he should have vanquished all of us long ago, but he hasn't, hasn't he? Any other king, any other king would have destroyed those who've been treasonous the way we have, but not our king. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. The psalm we read says he sent his son into the world to work out salvation. And he continues to call us to himself patiently working out the circumstances of our lives to bring us to faith and to repentance. And so Jonathan Edwards again says that the deeper we believe the truth of the gospel, the more it will dispose us thus to express our gratitude for his long-suffering exercise towards us. He has this great statement. Jonathan Edwards says, love works by gratitude. He says, they who love God will be thankful to him for the abundant long-suffering that he has exercised towards them in particular They who love God as they ought will have such a sense of his wonderful long suffering toward them under many injuries they have offered to him that it will seem to them but a small thing to bear with the injuries that have been offered to them by their fellow men. And as they thankfully accept and admire God's long suffering towards them, so they cannot but testify their gratitude for it by manifesting the same long suffering towards others. Do you want to be more patient? You know, don't go buy a self-help book that gives you, you know, strategies if you want to be more patient Jonathan Edwards says love works by gratitude if you want to be more patient you have to start by putting your mind on how God has treated you and the love and the patience that he has shown to you and the massive debt that you owed him in your sin and the forgiveness that he has offered to you I mean to forgive us Jesus had to come from heaven to earth to suffer the mistreatment and shame that should have been yours and mine. He suffered and he died to pay the penalty for our sins. Our sin was an infinite offense against the holy God, and it, and, it, and it thus required an infinite sacrifice. But because he loved us, Jesus paid for our sins so that we might no longer live under wrath, but under the Father's blessing and joy. And if your faith is in Jesus, God delights in you. Paul says he's chosen you. He's accepted you. You're dearly loved. He's forgiven all of your sins. That's the truth of the gospel. And if you go all the way back at the beginning of Colossians 3, Paul says, for you've died with Christ. Excuse me, for you've died and your life is hidden with God. Verse 3. Now, what does that mean? It means that when you put your confidence and trust in Jesus as your savior, your faith, what that, it means your faith unites you to him. You get absorbed into him. So much so that Paul says when he died, you died with him. In other words, God considers your sins as forgiven as if you yourself were crucified on the cross to pay for them. And so the Father no longer sees your sin. Paul says you're hidden in Christ. But that's not all. 
You're hidden in Christ. And that means that when the father looks at you, he sees the perfect record of his son and he's delighted. You're not just forgiven. You're beautiful. You're holy. You're chosen. You're accepted in the beloved. And in the gospel, we are clothed with Jesus's righteousness. All of his obedience is credited to us so that all of the blessing and the joy that are merited by that obedience are ours, too. You didn't do anything to deserve it. You can't do anything to forfeit it. It's sheer grace. You are hidden in Christ. If your faith is in Jesus, you're absolutely secure. And Jesus teaches us that this means that he is bringing us with him into the loving communion that he shares with his father. You're now included in the eternal love relationship that the Father and the Son have shared from one another since before the beginning of time. And despite the hardship of your circumstances, despite the conflict you might experience in community, despite the injuries and the the affronts and the assaults and the offenses that you might have to deal with, no matter how you've been hurt or offended, what the gospel screams into your life is God loves and delights in you in Jesus. That's the truth of the gospel. Now, do you see how that heals unbelief? It confirms. It confirms once and for all that God is for us. And finish it, if God is for us, who can be against us? And so do you see how that can create a heart of patience in us? If he's loved me like that, If he's been patient with me and not lashed out in wrath against me, but lashed out against Jesus instead, then how then I can be. If he's forgiven me that much. If he's forgiven us like that, what could we possibly not forgive in one another? I mean, that's the beauty of what he's calling us to. And so let's pray and ask him to do that. How about we do that together this morning? Uh, Father, our hearts are melted at the consideration of just how you have loved us. Of the ways that you've been patient with us and bore with us. Uh, What what an amazing thought that you love us, that you delight in us, that your joy, you sing over us in joy as we read from Zephaniah 3 last week. That we are your joy and your crown and your life. That your heart is for your people and that the gospel of Jesus Christ proves this to us once and for all. And so we pray that you would let the reality of the gospel sink deep down into our hearts, so deep that whether we are walking a road that is full of blessing and joy, we can sing praises. But if we are called to walk a road that is marked with suffering, it doesn't change the, 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 the song of praise that comes from our lips. And if everything's great and there's no conflict, that we can celebrate that. But if there's conflict, if there's hardship, if there's confrontation, if there's offense and sin, uh, that our hearts can be quiet and we can we can absorb the cost and we can not lash out uh, and that you would be glorified in us. I pray that you would come and work these things into our life together as this church and that it would be to your great glory. And I pray these things in Jesus name.